Let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, and verse 4. Matthew 19, verse 4, and we'll be reading there in just a moment. Matthew 19, and verse 4. The title of this morning's message is The Secret of Staying Together. The Secret of Staying Together. It's one of those interesting moments that every pastor faces when you work and prepare all week to preach a particular message and then the Lord redirects. And so the message that I had planned this morning, I'll be preaching next Sunday morning, Lord willing. And I feel very strongly that the Lord is leading me to talk about assurance of salvation. And so if you're a person who struggles with certainty about your own security in Christ, that message will be one for you, and that'll be coming up next week. But today, we want to talk about the secret of staying together in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, and this is what the Word of the Lord says, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. Attending a wedding for the first time a little girl watching what was happening down front asked her mother, Why is that lady wearing all white? And her mother explained to her, said, well, she's the bride, dear. She's the one that's getting married. And this is a special day for her, and she is so happy. And she is so excited. That white captures her happiness and joy and her cheerfulness uh, over this special wedding day. And then she said, well, why is that man up there wearing black? There are a lot of different viewpoints that people have about marriage and their marriages. I don't know the condition of your marriage. If you're here today as a married person, I don't know if your marriage is going well or not. I don't know if you're happily married or not. But we have got to give attention to our marriages. As I speak this morning, there are 32 states in our nation where it is now legal for members of the same sex to marry one another. There are 12 other states where there is a legal battle underway as those states have taken a traditional stand on marriage and that stand is being challenged in the courts. Arkansas is one of those 12 states. And then there are six states where it is still only a man and a woman who can marry legally in those states. The whole concept of marriage has changed. It is being redefined and restated by our legal system. It is being reduced from a biblical ideal, which we're going to be touching on this morning. It is being reduced from a biblical concept of something that illustrates the relationship of Christ and the church to anything that makes me happy or I think will make me happy. It's being reduced from a covenant between a husband and a wife, a man and woman, 
who are promising to spend the rest of their years together. It's being reduced to a simple contract that people can dissolve pretty much at will whenever they get ready. There are cities now across the United States, and I'm sure you've read about Houston recently, that have passed laws. They've also passed that law in Fayetteville as well, and places like Fort Smith that have ruled they're so intent on minimizing the differences between men and women that they are ruling that you cannot discriminate in any area of public life, including public accommodations. And so the man who thinks he's a woman can go into a woman's restroom. And, and it's only going to get worse because there is no standard, there is no moral footing, there is no guide in the public conversation anymore. There are people who are arguing over how the church should respond. As always, there are those who are the church militant, who believe that the answer is to petition and to vote and to make the change in a legal arena, and I am not discouraging that. You are a citizen, most of you as far as I know are citizens of the United States, and as such, you have a God-given gift and responsibility to participate in the public conversation. And well, you should. But that is not the way the church should address the problem. The greatest offense of marriage, the greatest way to make a statement about what the Bible says about marriage is to have a strong marriage of your own at home. And long before there were church buildings, and long before there were organized churches, there were households where the church would gather in the early church for the first 250 years. And in those households, you typically had the picture of some kind of a marriage uh, uh, that was along biblical lines. And so long before the church was organized around a corporate model like we are today, the church was organized around a family model where we were to think of older men as fathers, older women as mothers, Younger men and women as brothers and sisters and so forth. And we have lost that. But I believe with all my heart that the greatest statement you and I are ever going to make about the value and the importance and the truth of marriage as God teaches it will be in our own home. It is the joy of two people married together following God. It is their witness in their relationship. It is the way they relate to one another, the way they look after one another, the way they care for one another, the way they function together as two very different people but who manage to work together under God's will to accomplish different things. It is that home that will be the thing that will cause heads to turn and people to listen. Arkansas right now has the second highest divorce rate in the nation. And if you were to say, Pastor, why is that? I, on one hand, I'd say I don't have a clue. Why Arkansas? I know why Nevada's number one. Because it's easy to get one there. And that's where people go to do it. I don't understand why Arkansas is number two. But I can tell you right now that as a church, we are failing in helping people build marriages that last. And so I want to talk to you this morning about the secret of staying together. I first shared these ideas in a wedding last fall, so some of you may have heard some of these points before, but I hope that God will use them in your life and that you'll apply them at home. Uh, my wife and I have been married 32 years, 33 years ago, Gail was my college sweetheart, and, um, 
and I think I can speak with some authority now about the secret of staying together. Now, don't, don't ask me next week. I may get in trouble this afternoon. But, uh, but I think I have some things I can share with you about the secret of staying together, not only from God's Word, but also from our experience. I think I'm beginning to understand what works. My father-in-law have had an ongoing conversation for years. He's been a student of his wife. And he has religiously cut out articles in the newspaper, articles in magazines, and saved them in his effort to understand his bride. And uh, he's always dropping pieces of advice to me. Uh, one of my favorites is you can be too good to a woman. And um, there's always a context for every statement, so don't judge me for that. Do you want your marriage to last all your life? I want to share with you five insights that I believe arise from God's Word that can help you build a marriage that will last. And we know that's God's heart. We read that in that passage of Scripture when Jesus was asked about putting away a wife or divorce. His response was to go immediately to the book of Genesis and to reveal from the pages of that ancient book what God's original intent was for marriage. God's the only one that can tell us the truth about what it means to be a husband and a man, what it means to be a woman and a wife, and what it means to be in a marriage. Here's the first secret, if you will, that I would share. If you want to stay together the rest of your life, be ready to cope with change. Be ready to cope with change. You know, one of the disciplines, husbands, that you ought to have is that as you spend time alone in God's Word and God speaks to you through His Word, one of the things that should always come back to you at some point in your journey is how am I applying this, not out there in the workplace, not in my church assignments and my church service, but how am I applying this at home? Here's an example. This is a verse we studied a year ago last summer, Romans 15, verse 7. Paul tells the church, and it applies to married couples, therefore, receive or take to oneself one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God receive one another now the basic idea of that if I was going to receive David come up here David for just a moment here's here's the visual of what it means to receive someone when he says to receive one another it means to take them to yourself are you comfortable at this moment it means to take them to yourself. Thank you, brother. I love doing stuff like that. Okay, it means, it means to receive them. It means to welcome them. And we are called to do that certainly for each other at church. But if I do it at church, shouldn't I do it at home? And, and I should do that with my spouse. A husband should receive his wife. A wife should receive her husband. And you say, well, I did that when I, when I made a promise and I married that person. You need to do it all the time. You need to be a, a welcoming them, receiving them. Now, why do I say that in the context of talking about change? Because change is going to happen, isn't it? Those of you who have been married a while, you know that marriage is going to change. Most love-struck couples have never thought about this. You know, when they get married and they walk down the aisle, their idea of uh, what's going to happen is that this incredible person that I am in love with today this person who is so good-looking, I mean, I think they're hot. I still call her the hot blonde. And, and I, think, I think they're, you know, you look at that person, I think, I love this person. I love who they are. I love the way they think. I love the way they make decisions. I love everything about this person. And I want it to stay this way the rest of our lives, and so I'm going to marry them. 
That's not what happens. Things change. We grow older, if nothing else. And as we grow older, if we're in Christ, we grow better. Our character should improve. We should become better men, better women in that process. But things change. Some of the things you liked when you were younger, you may not like as much when you get older. I mean, there are some things, I'm not going to talk about them because I'll get in trouble. There are some things where Gail and I have completely reversed in our approach to life in certain areas. She so influenced me that I'm a lot more like the way she was when we first married on certain issues. And apparently I influenced her negatively. (laughs) And she's a lot more like me on certain topics than when we first married. And so we change. Most of us envision life together when we first get started like uh, Snow White and Prince Charming. When you go and you watch that Disney movie, my mama watched that movie when she was a little girl, and then I watched it when I was a little boy in the movie theater. Um, And my children watched that film when they were growing up. And you see that Snow White never changes. She never gets older. And the story always ends the same way. But you know that's not reality. Snow White lost her teeth. Snow White got wrinkles. Snow White got gray hair. And as I mentioned last week, she might have put on a few pounds. Snow White changed. And and let's not even talk about Prince Charming. The handsome prince lost his hair or may have lost some of his teeth. And so you have to ask yourself, if you're a married person, even if you've been married a long time, what is my attitude towards change? Am I going to receive my partner, my spouse, my husband, my wife, am I going to receive that person today with the same intensity, the same commitment, and the same warmth that I did on the day I said I do? You've got to be able to cope with change. I think the number one complaint I hear, and I've mentioned this before, but I think the number one complaint I hear when people come and their marriage is in trouble, and usually when they come to me, it's too late. But often I think the thing that I hear the most is something that you've heard before, and that is that I simply don't love him anymore. I don't love her anymore. Aside from the fact that that's a gross misunderstanding of love. Because the love that husbands are called to, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, is a kind of love that's self-sacrificing and willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish God's purpose in that other person's life. Willing to do what is the very best for them. In fact, the word agape that husbands are called to with their wives has very little to do with feelings. It is a raw commitment, a decision to do what's best for your spouse no matter what the cost to yourself. And so when someone comes to me and says, I don't love her anymore, I know what they're talking about. They're talking about emotion. But that doesn't mean they can't be obedient to God's command to husbands love your wives. Because that commandment is, uh, is, a, is that, a command. And if he were commanding an emotion, that would be grossly unfair because I can't fully control my emotions. But he's not commanding an emotion. He's commanding that I do something and that I act in a certain way related to my wife. So when I say I don't love 
her anymore. I'm simply saying I'm choosing to be disobedient to what God has called me to be and do as a husband. But normally when people come and they say that, I don't love him or her anymore, you know what they're telling me? They've changed. They've changed. And they, they don't look the same way in the morning. And I see faults in them because now we live together and I see who they really are. And I see what they're like. And I don't like what I see. And there's parts of it that I don't care about anymore. And what they're saying to me is, I got married and I was not prepared to cope with change. Because change is woven into the very fabric of your relationship with your spouse. So that's the first thing, the secret of staying together. You've got to be ready to cope with change. How are you going to cope with parenthood when it becomes time to become parents? What's it going to be like for you when you become grandparents? We had all our kids home this week, and we were celebrating because our oldest son and his wife are about to adopt. They've not been able to have children of their own, so they're about to adopt. And sometime before the end of the year, Gail and I will become grandparents for the first time. And I get to be as insufferable as the rest of you have been. Showing you pictures of our young grandchild. And, and, and when that change takes place, how, how do you respond to those changes? Serious illness when it comes. How are you going to respond to that? Well, we must not only be willing to cope with change, but there's a second thing we have to do. Secondly, we must be ready to accept what cannot be changed. We have to accept what cannot be changed. A young minister was about to perform his first wedding. He goes to an older pastor, and he asks him for advice, and he gives it to him. And then the last piece of advice he gives to the younger minister is this. He says, if you get into the ceremony, and you forget what you're supposed to say next, he said, just quote Scripture. That's always good. Quote a Scripture until you remember what you're supposed to do, and then go forward. So the man conducts his first wedding, and it's going well. People have entered well. They've given away the bride, and he's supposed to give his talk. And... Um, and then he gets to a certain place after they've kissed one another at the very end, and he doesn't know what to say next. And so he says, the first scripture that comes to mind, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. <laughs> the truth is, when you and I get married, we don't know what we're doing. We really don't know what we're doing. When Gail and I got married, because, because um, I had a background where where marriage and what a good marriage looks like was not, was not in my view. I think I read every book I could find on marriage that was available in 1981. I think I read everything. Strike the Original Match by Chuck Swindoll. I mean, I could list the books that I read. Larry Christensen's The Christian Family. I, I read all of those books. Some of y'all know those books because you're, you're older than I am. Because I wanted to get it right. I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to know, oh God, how do I be the husband that you've called me to be? God, you're entrusting with me the responsibility to help Gail become all that you have called her to be. And that is an absolutely awesome assignment. And oh God, I don't want to mess that up. But the truth is, when we finally got married, I'd read all those books. I didn't have a clue. We have to be ready to accept what cannot be changed. There are certain aspects of your, your mate that are not going to change. And one of the great difficulties or problems I have when I see couples, and I don't want you to avoid, because I'm not going to name names, okay? I don't want you to avoid coming to see me because I'm saying this, but you just need to hear this. 
one of the great difficulties that people have is accepting that there's an aspect of their partner's personality or their preferences or the way they do things or what's important to them that is not going to change. And how many times have you seen someone spend all of their energy, all of their time trying to affect change in their spouse rather than accept who they are? Wives, it is your responsibility to yield to your husband's leadership. That word, the S word, submit, that appears over and over again in Scripture has nothing to do with your worth or value in the sight of God. When the Lord talks about wives being submissive to their husbands, He's not talking about whether He is superior and she is inferior. Because I know that Gail is infinitely superior to me in many areas. One of the best things she's good at is being a woman. And I'm never going to be any good at that. But when the, Lord, when the Lord calls us to that, ladies, he calls you to yield to his leadership. You trust God to change him. You give him to the Lord and say, oh God, I want my husband to be a godly man. You pray for him. You encourage him, you love on him, but listen to me. If you nag him, the Bible talks about nagging. I don't know why we skip those verses. You know, when the, when the Bible talks about it's better to live in the corner of an attic than with a nagging woman, he's saying something to us very important. When Peter writes that it's possible to win your husband without a word, he may be an unbeliever, he may be a person that doesn't know God and doesn't know Christ, you have more effect on him not with your words, but with your life and your character and your love for Jesus that bleeds through everything that you are and everything that you do. You have to be willing to accept what cannot be changed. Wise people who want their marriages to last accept those things that cannot change in their partners. If you want to work on something that needs to change, take yourself to the Lord Jesus and say, God, grow me. Change me. Focus on yourself and see what God will then do in your marriage. Now, if we want to be married all of our lives, you have to be willing to cope with change, accept the things that cannot be changed, and thirdly, honor your spouse. Honor your spouse. In Romans 12:10, another verse that we've studied before in this auditorium, it says, "Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another." Now, we saw when we studied that verse that there's four different words for love that you there. It's a great passage of Scripture. But the word I want you to, to, to zero in on is the word honor. Now, that word honor is a very special word. And for years, I don't think I understood it until I studied it. But honor describes the worth assigned to a person or the value ascribed to a thing. And we are called to honor one another. One of the worst things you can do is be critical and express contempt for your husband or for your wife to someone else or in front of them. We're called instead to honor them. As you know, I like to use the idea of a price tag to describe honor because that's what honor is. You're establishing their value, and so you take a price tag and you can write on it what you think of them and stick it on them. Now, don't go do this at home. 
But to honor your spouse, to honor your husband, to honor your wife is to say, you are worth something to me. Now, what are they worth? Well, one of the great passages of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 6.20 says to you and to me, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, what was the price that was paid to purchase you and me? Wasn't it the blood of Jesus Christ? Wasn't it the life of Christ? When God looked down through the ages and he saw you and he determined that he would save you or rescue you through the blood of Jesus Christ, he determined your worth was infinite. Your value to him was equal to the life of Jesus Christ. I don't understand that. That God would take his precious son who was stain free, who knew no sin, and would cause him to die in my place. But he determined forever my worth and my value because of that. And yours too. Yours too. You and I need to learn to honor our spouse. It's a choice that you and I make. This past summer, um, I came across some research about um, secular research. This has nothing to do with, with Christian teaching. But secular research into marriages that thrive. Marriages that are working. Marriages that last. And this one researcher, he's one of the world's leading researchers on marital relationships, he uses the presence of contempt or kindness to predict the direction of that marriage. Think about that, contempt or kindness. He says contempt is the number one factor that tears couples apart. People who are focused on criticizing their partners miss a whopping 50% of positive things their partners are doing, and that's a measured number. In other words, they, they, they miss the good things that are going on because they're so focused on the negative. They see negativity even when it's not there. You ever feel like with, with someone that you're dealing with that you can't do anything right? That's someone who's treating you with contempt. People who give their partner the cold shoulder, deliberately ignoring the partner or responding minimally, damage the relationship by making their partner feel worthless and invisible and if they're not, as if they're not there, not valued. Guess what the biblical word for that is? It's talking about honor. Kindness versus contempt. Kindness, on the other hand, he says, glues couples together. Research independent of theirs has shown that kindness is one of the most important predictors of satisfaction and stability in a marriage. Kindness makes each partner feel cared for, understood, validated, and loved. Now, what was interesting is I, I, I looked further to find out what, what did they actually do in their field studies that helped them identify contempt and kindness as being predictors of the outcome of that marriage. Well, they came up with marriages that, that were either masters or disasters. Masters and disasters. Here was the key, though. They studied a large group of couples, and he noticed that throughout the day, married partners made requests for connection and the researcher called them bids, called them bids. Now, that sounds odd, but those are researchers for you. they gotta, they got to make it sound sophisticated. They can't get a Ph.D. But you know what they're describing? Last night, as I was um, mixing uh, uh, my notes with uh, college football, my wife called out to me and said, Look outside. There's a sunset out there. It looks like cotton candy. That's called a bid. I failed miserably, but it's called a bid. All right? 
Now, how a partner responds to that bid, they either turn towards their partner and engage because it's not, hey, come look at this, this bird, this beautiful bird or something outside. It's not just come look at the bird. It's an invitation to connect with your partner. You get it? And so, hey, come look at this. Hey, I was reading this. Hey, I saw this on television. Hey, I heard this today. And they, they, it's a bid. It's an invitation to be engaged. And, and what they watched for was people who turned toward their partners in the study or partners who turned away. Partners who turned away responded minimally, ignored the bid, or expressed contempt as in that stupid or stop bothering me. I didn't say that. The researcher said that. And here's the interesting thing. Now listen to this. They did a six-year follow-up after studying those couples. They had measured their behaviors in year one. In year six, here's what they found. Couples who had divorced after a six-year follow-up had turned toward bids 33% of the time. What that means is when she says, hey, come look at this sunset, the partner only responded one-third of the time. Partners that were still married and on a trajectory to have a long and lasting marriage who were still together after the six years had a turn toward bids 87% of the time. In other words, marriages that were going to last, when that partner extended that invitation to a conversation, that invitation to be engaged, to be a part of what he's thinking or part of what she's thinking, nine out of ten times the other partner turned towards their spouse. You know what that is? honor it's honor when your partner talks to you or invites you and engages you in conversation you are expressing their worth and value if you turn towards them and you respond it is honor well we need to stay married the rest of our lives by learning to cope with change accepting what cannot be changed honoring our spouse and the number four be committed to a permanent relationship be committed to a permanent relationship. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Now, I chose that verse because it makes something very clear. That God's intent and what honors the Lord is that you stay with your spouse the remainder of your life. And so they use the word bound describe that relationship you know what a marriage vow is it is a promise it's not a promise just for what you're going to do for the other person it's also a promise that you're going to be there you're going to be there five years from now you're going to be there things are going to change but you're going to be there 10 years from now 15 years from now 20 years from now you and I need to be committed to a permanent relationship now why is that because if I'm not happy in my marriage, is God trying to make me unhappy? Is he trying to restrict us in some way? Is he taking away something that is good? No, because he knows that real love and fulfillment exist only in conditions where there's long-term trust and commitment. In other words, when you put up walls around your relationship and you said, this is where we are, this is not going to change, I'm with you for the rest of my life, in the context of that kind of commitment, there are things that happen in your relationship to one another that will never happen apart from that commitment. It's hard work. 
And when you're married to someone who is not like you and totally different from you and thinks differently from you, is cold when you're not cold, hot when you're not hot, that commitment to stay together yields benefits and that God will use that marriage to grow you as a man of God more than any other relationship in your life. It will grow you as a woman of God more than any other relationship in your life. So many times we think, well, if I could just get out of this relationship and find a strong Christian man or a strong Christian woman, my life would be better. That's not what the Bible says. Your commitment to a permanent relationship is valuable in his eyes. People who live together without the promise to stay together are missing something. And living together is the most popular way to start out a relationship anymore. There's no pledge to permanence. And because of that, statistically and experientially, trust is lower. Intimacy is limited. Love is cautious. And security is non-existent. Only marriage can release two people to love each other in a way that honors God and goes deeper, lasts longer, and means more. So the secret of staying together involves coping with change, accepting what can't change, honoring one another, being committed to a permanent relationship. But the fifth thing that I'd like to share with you is this. Most important of all, let the Holy Spirit rule. Let the Holy Spirit rule. A little boy sat through a Sunday school class and learned about the time that Jesus went to a wedding and changed the water into wine. When he got home, his daddy asked him at the Sunday table, and what did you learn from that story? The boy thought for a moment and said, if you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. And that's good advice. Marriage truly takes three. Galatians 5 verses 22 to 25 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And you and I have much to learn about what it means to walk in the Spirit because it's so much easier for us to look at a set of rules and say, just tell me what to do. But that way didn't work in the Old Testament. It's not that the rules were bad. We weren't able to keep them. And so to fix that, in the New Testament, what God does is a solution to the problem of human beings that can't live in his kingdom. Is he comes and he takes his Holy Spirit, and the moment a person trusts Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside that person. He is the very presence of God, and he is there to bring to your mind everything that pleases God. He is there to give you the strength and power to do everything that pleases God. Now, to walk in the Spirit, as that last verse mentioned, is a very special word for walk. It's not a word for walk as in as you conduct your life, as you walk around, walk in the Spirit. He's saying, if we live in the Spirit, he's saying literally, let us keep step with the Spirit. Keep step with the Spirit. It's like a marching band where people walk together in unison and each one takes a step in the same way that the other's taking a step. When the Holy Spirit moves, I want to move with him. 
And to walk in the Spirit means that you and I develop and cultivate a relationship with Jesus Christ through His Spirit is that when He speaks and when He prompts and when He moves us, we obey. Now, why is that important in a marriage? It is incredibly important in a marriage. Because you're going to have disagreements, you're going to have squabbles, you're going to have problems, you're going to have difficulties. And the Holy Spirit of God, He is absolutely essential if that marriage is going to last. He is the one who convicts someone to go and ask forgiveness from someone else. He is the one who will move you to act and do something when all you feel is a desire to run. He is the one that will bring you back to try again and again and again when you've tried a hundred times to get it right and you've messed up each time. He is the one who will cause you both to seek the pleasure of God in the way you treat each other and the way you talk to each other. He's the one who will lead you as a couple to bring him honor and glory by the very nature of your relationship. He is essential. Without him, without the Holy Spirit of God inside you and inside your spouse, it is very difficult to predict the future of that marriage. And I don't want to be offensive, but I used to say if you shut God out of your marriage, I wouldn't give you 25 cents for its future. Some of you are struggling in your marriage this morning because you have shut God out. You are more concerned with how you feel and what you think than what is going to please God in my life. It is the Holy Spirit's presence of God that allows Jesus not to be an idea in an old book or someone you talk about at church, but he's not a passive spectator in your marriage, but through the Holy Spirit, he becomes an active presence. And he speaks, and he leads, and he guides, and he convicts, and he corrects. And we desperately need him. It happens to us every day when we yield our hearts to him. The only time that you and I can walk in the Spirit, listen to me, the only time you and I can keep in step with the Spirit is this moment. I can't do it yesterday. And I can't commit to walk in the Spirit tomorrow. But in this moment and in your worst moment of your worst day of your marriage, that's the only time you can walk in the Spirit is in that moment. And where is He stepping? And how is He leading? And how is He guiding through the Spirit inside you, you have everything you need for your marriage to be successful. Everything you need for your marriage to be a shining light in a world that is dark and run amok and gone crazy in relationship to God. When you argue, and I'm speaking from experience, he will wait for you to calm down and listen to him again. When you are fearful, he will be your place of absolute safety. When you were hurt, he will heal your heart and enable you to forgive. When you are confused, he will give you direction. When you are unable to love anymore, he will love through you with the love of the Savior and will love your spouse. I think you get the idea. He is everything you need to stay together. This morning, I want to encourage you as we have a time of response to say yes to whatever God has spoken to your heart. Maybe your marriage is in trouble and right now you are this close to jumping ship. And I don't know you and I don't know who you are, but I do know this. God is on the side that wants to save your marriage. 
And I encourage you to open your heart to him. This response time that we're about to have together is actually an act of worship. The very essence of worship means to yield or to bow down before someone else. It's not what we sing, although that can be part of it. But worship is when we bow down and we lie on our faces and we prostrate ourselves in our spirit, in our heart, in our lives to one who is greater than we are. And you may have been saying no to him and running from him and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop. And he's saying to you, listen to me. I want to do more in you and through you than you ever dreamed possible. And it may not get better overnight, but it's going to be a whole lot better with him in charge than with you in charge. And so some of you, that you need to come and you need to lay yourself before the Lord. In your heart of hearts, you need to say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for not listening to you. Forgive me for being selfish. Forgive me for trying to change my mate. Forgive me for whatever it is that God convicts your heart. And say, now come, Lord, come and fill my life. Fill me from my head to my feet. Fill me so that every thought I have is a thought of what would please you. Fill me. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit of God does not live inside you. And so your first order of business is to come and know Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, all of your sins. The sins you've committed in your marriage, the sins you've committed in your life, the sins you committed when you were young, the sins you haven't even committed yet. The Bible says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And every single sin that needed punishment, that needed to be done away with, that would have put you in hell for eternity, Jesus Christ died in your place. And you can be forgiven if you've messed up. Your spouse may not forgive you, but Jesus will forgive you. And you need to come, and you need to say, Dear God, I repent, I turn from my sin, my life without you, and I turn to you. And I'm giving you my life, all my life, from this day forward. I'm trusting you to save me and to change me. The Bible says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This morning, I'll be down front. There'll be other pastors down front. You know, the Bible talks about the importance of believing on Christ. But it also talks about the importance of confessing him as Lord. Because when you confess him as Lord, you are sealing the deal. So if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, he says, you shall be saved. So I want to encourage you is when we stand and sing, if you need to trust Christ, to slip out of the pew. Don't worry about what anybody else will say or think. We will rejoice with you. I encourage you to come and publicly give your life to Christ. Our pastors will talk with you. They'll share scripture with you. They'll answer your questions. They'll take all the time you need. We invite you to come. Maybe you just need to come and pray at the altar for yourself or someone that you know and use this as a time where you're interceding and praying. As God leads you, how will you respond? Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and its power to change our lives. We know, Lord, we need to change. Father, we want the, uh, the damage of divorce to stop in Wynn, Arkansas. Father, I pray for that person today who's already experienced divorce. They know what I'm talking about. They've experienced it. They've been through it. They know the truth. And I pray this morning you would encourage that person who is hurting and crying out because they want their marriage to be right. They want their marriage to be be something precious, something golden in your sight. 
And dear God, as we respond to you now, as we are obedient, would your spirit rush in and give us new hope and a fresh vision of what we need to do next. God, as, as there are people here today that may need to trust you as their Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, would you convict them, convince them, and draw them as we yield our hearts to you. In Jesus' name I pray.